Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome in to the inaugural edition of the Never Graduate College Sports Podcast, where today I'm going to give you my best preseason win total bets leading into the 2022 college football season. My name is Tyler Graves, and I will be talking a lot of college sports on this podcast, hopefully for many years to come into the future. At least that's the plan. I guess technically that's up to you guys, but as far as I'm concerned on my end, that's the plan. But before we talk any college football today, and trust me, we are going to talk a hell of a lot of college football today. I think the first thing I need to do on this initial episode is tell you guys a little bit, at least a little bit, about who I am, why I launched this podcast, and most importantly, what this podcast is going to bring you each and every week. I promise I'll make this quick, at least I'll try to make this quick, because I don't know about you guys, but I want to talk some serious college football today. But first, let me introduce myself a little bit here. Yes, as I said at the outset, my name is Tyler Graves, and I'm not new to podcasting. I'm new to this podcast, but I'm not new to podcasting. I've hosted a team podcast for the past eight years. My co-host and I actually just re-signed with our distribution partners over the past couple of weeks, and things have been going really well with that podcast. So as part of this new deal that we signed, I was presented with an opportunity to launch this national college sports podcast. And to be quite honest with you guys, this is literally a dream come true for me. I know that's kind of an overused cliche, but cliche or not, it's 100% true for me in this case. It truly is a dream come true because if there's one thing you need to know about me, and you'll figure this out if you listen to this show, if you stick with us for a while, if there's one thing you need to know about me, And for better or worse, this is probably my defining characteristic. I love college sports. Eat it, drink, sleep, breathe, dream, whatever. It's all college football, college basketball, college sports for me. I live college football. Seriously, not only do I love college football, I quite literally live in a college town. And not just any college town. With all due respect to Madison, Wisconsin, and Ames, Iowa, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Oxford, Mississippi, all wonderful college towns, 
I am lucky enough to live in the greatest college town of them all, which of course is Athens, Georgia. And no, I'm not in college either. Those glory days are far, far in the rear view for me. I am an adult choosing to live in a college town because for me, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the energy, the excitement, the passion, the buzz of living in a big time college town. And yes, as you might have deduced from the fact that I live in Athens, I am a Georgia guy, a very proud Georgia Bulldog. Let's just get that out of the way here on the first episode. I'm not going to hide that. I don't want to hide that. I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm going to be straight up with you guys. That's who I am. But I am also just a college sports junkie in general. In fact, and look, people can live their lives however they want to live their lives and, and do their thing. But as far as I'm concerned, I really just do not understand how you can proclaim that you love college sports, that you're a college football junkie, and not have a team near and dear to your heart. That just doesn't register with me. In fact, I think that's impossible. I think it's truly an impossibility. If there is one thing in the world that annoys me more than anything else, it is unquestionably when members of the college sports media, people who cover college football, college basketball, when they try to feign as though they are 100% completely unbiased, they have absolutely no rooting interest in games whatsoever. Come on, man. That is complete and utter BS. But forever, that's kind of been the general rule, at least among the old school rank and file college football media. The gatekeepers, if you will, of the college football media universe. You can't be a fan and be a serious journalist, but come on, man. Get out of here with that. I don't live in a fantasy land. I live in reality. And in reality... Everyone is a fan of someone to some degree, and everyone hates someone else. That's just reality. I don't know about you guys, but I value and I appreciate authenticity. And for better or worse, that's what I'm going to bring you 100% of the time on this podcast. I will tell you exactly what I think, and more importantly, why I think it. You won't always agree with me, and that's a beautiful thing. That's what makes college sports so amazing, so fantastic, is that no one really agrees on anything. But I'll always support my ideas, I'll support my thoughts, I'll back them up, I'll give you reasons why I think something, and I'm sure you guys will give me reasons why I'm wrong. And that's awesome. Bring it on. That's a beautiful thing. So, do I love the University of Georgia? Yes, with every fiber of my being. That's just the truth, man. I'm not going to hide that from you. I have more respect for you than that. But just because I'm a Georgia guy, does that mean I can't be objective? Absolutely not. Does that mean I can't be critical of Georgia? Trust me on this. Absolutely not. Does that mean I can't praise other programs and objectively give them credit when when they deserve it? Absolutely not. I'll give you an example. I'm not a Tennessee guy. Not a fan. But to be entirely honest with you, that program is doing some really good things right now. I think they are legitimately on their way to being back sooner rather than later. I don't like saying that. That doesn't make me happy. That brings me no pleasure in life. But like I said, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. So that's who I am, and that's why I am launching this podcast. I quite simply love college sports. It's that simple. I mean, actually, I would say I live college sports. That's that's the truth. There is nothing I like doing more than watching, researching, gambling on, and talking college sports. 
That's what I love. But look, I get it. There are other college sports podcasts out there, and a lot of them do a really good job. But I was driven to start this podcast in order to create college sports content that serves the most diehard fans out there because that's what I am. And as a college sports diehard myself, I am constantly frustrated and have really been my entire life frustrated with the fact that the vast majority of college sports content out there is geared towards the casual fan. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the college sports podcast or college sports radio show catering to the casual fan because there are a lot of casual fans out there. There need to be podcasts like that. I have no problem with them. What's frustrating me is that there's almost nothing out there for the diehard, hardcore college ball fans like me who live and breathe this stuff who go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it and dream about it in between. That's been my issue. That's been my frustration over the years because for far too long, the calculus seemingly has been, well, the diehard fans are going to listen no matter what because they just love college sports. So if we talk college sports, they're going to listen. But if you go too in-depth, well, that's going to alienate the casual fans. So let's dumb it down. I mean, let's be real here, guys. I don't like saying dumb it down, but that's kind of what happens. They dumb it down. And let's pull in as wide of an audience as we can. And that's fine, but what is the result? The result is the diehard fan gets ignored. Well, here's the thing. I don't care about the casual fan. In fact, the casual fan kind of offends me. You know, when I was given the opportunity to do this podcast, one of my requirements upon accepting it was that I'd be given a free hand to do the show my way. And my way is to explicitly design this podcast for you guys, for you hardcore, diehard college sports fans who, again, live and die with every single snap, every single shot. So on this podcast, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover college sports with a passion and a depth that I personally believe, at least this is what I'm shooting for, is unmatched in the college sports media landscape. I get that I'm a nobody. Trust me, I get that. I'm not trying to pretend to be anybody that I'm not. I'm a nobody. I don't have a big sports media company behind me. I have enough self-awareness to know that this is a grassroots operation. That's what it is, just like my first podcast was. But that's not going to stop me from giving you guys everything I have and covering college sports like no one else out there does. Again, for better or worse, I'm going to do it my way and try to create the college football, college sports podcast that I've always wanted to listen to. And I don't know what kind of audience there is for a podcast like that. What I want might not be what anybody else on earth wants. So I don't really know what the future holds. I don't know how many people are going to listen to this podcast, but I can at least guarantee you this. I'm going to fire up the mic multiple times every single week and talk college football talk college basketball with passion, intensity, and depth because I love college sports. And if you're listening to this podcast, I know you do too. So why not? Let's do this thing together. But enough with the intro. I promise you in all episodes moving forward, we will get right into the content, right into the college football talk. But I did just want to introduce myself a little bit, let you know what this podcast is about and what we're going to do moving forward. But let's go ahead and move into this stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's talk some ball. So 
I've spent the past couple of months planning and putting this podcast together. And look, I, I know how important the first episode is. You never forget a first impression, right? So I brainstormed the best way to cover a lot of different teams from all over the country in an in-depth, engaging way. And, you know, it didn't take me long. Pretty quickly, it became clear to me that the answer was win total projections. So today, we are going to kick off this podcast with a list of my top 10 2022 college football preseason win total picks. Not only do I love watching and consuming college sports, I also love to responsibly gamble on college sports. And I truly love it, man. I, I eat this stuff up. I love when the preseason win totals come out because it gives you a chance to really dig into projecting the coming season. It's just fun. I love doing it. So let's have some fun today. And originally, I had planned to give you all 10 of these picks today in one episode. But when I got into the planning stages and started making the outline for the show and starting to do the research and putting it all together, I realized pretty quickly that if we did all 10 picks in one episode, it was going to be like a three or four hour episode. I mean, I could give you the picks, but there's no way that I was going to be able to go into the type of depth that I want to go on in this show for you diehard fans without going for at least three hours on this episode. And I know no one wants to sit here and listen to a three-hour episode. So I'm going to do you guys a favor here, and I'm going to break this into two different parts. So part one today, I'm going to give you the first five picks on my list of the best 2022 college football preseason win total picks. And then later on this week, in the second episode of this Never Graduate podcast, I'll give you the remaining five. So we're going to break it into two parts. That way we can digest it all in one sitting, and then we get another helping later on this week. These are not necessarily in order. It's not a ranking. It's just a list. And as we go through this list today and later on this week, I'll tell you which ones that I feel more confident in and which ones I've actually put my hard-earned money on, and that'll probably give you a better idea of, of which ones that I feel the most confident in, but I'm not ranking them necessarily. I'm going to give you my picks, but more importantly, I'm going to give you a deep dive into why I like each one of them. And my process in making these picks, it's pretty simple. I've already done this, guys. I've picked each and every game that will be played by Power 5 teams and a select group of five teams. I did that back in May, like when the win totals were first coming out. And the way I do this is if my win projection for a team, so I've I've already picked every single game on every single conference schedule, and if my win projection for a team came out one and a half games above or below their win total number, then that team goes on the best bets list. And then from there, I just narrow it down to the 10 I feel most confident in, which of course, I mean, that's, let's be real, it's a very inexact science, but hey, it works. It works for me. I like to give myself some breathing room. That's why I go with one and a half games above or below. So let's say if a team has a win total at six and a half, if I have you projected at eight and four, then that's a best bet. It goes on the list because that's at least one and a half games above the win total. On the flip side, if I have you projected at five and seven, well, that's also a best bet. I'm just on the other side. It's on the underside because I have you projected to go more than a game under the win total. So that's kind of how I do it. I like to give myself a little bit of breathing room because I think there's just too much variability when you're only using a single game. So let's kick this off here. Up first on my 2022 college football preseason best bets list, 
is the Oklahoma State Cowboys. The win total is at nine, at least according to Caesars. And look, guys, I don't subscribe to one particular book. I shop around and get the best line, the one that works best for me. And the most common one you see for Oklahoma State is nine. I told you guys this wasn't necessarily a ranking, but rather just a list. But I'll be honest with you. This is the pick on the list that I probably feel least confident about. This is the one I'm most iffy on. I still like it. I'm just not as confident in this one. So let's talk about both why it's on my list, why I'm confident enough to have it on my top 10 list, but why it's the one I'm least confident in among these 10 picks I'm going to give you guys over the course of this week. But I've got Oklahoma State going under nine wins in 2022. And I know for a lot of you who watched them play last year, that might sound a little bit out of left field. Of course, Oklahoma State did make a Big 12 title game appearance a year ago. They had that epic comeback in the Fiesta Bowl to beat Notre Dame. Ended up 12-2, a fantastic season for the Cowboys. So Tyler, why you hate on the Pokes this year, man? Why you hate on those poor guys? Well, I'm not trying to hate on them. Again, I'm just trying to be honest. I'm trying to be objective here. If you look at Oklahoma State last year, awesome year. But what was the formula for success for them in 2021? Really, they kind of flipped their old formula on its head. Like when Oklahoma State's had good years in the past, it was all about playing offense. It's all about putting up points, high-powered, high-flying offenses, and just enough defense. Last year, it was the inverse. It was all about defense and the ground game and just enough in the passing game. They were top 10 nationally in scoring defense. They were top 10 in opponents' points per play, top 10 rush defense, top 10 toe defense, top 10 defense efficiency, top 10 in basically everything. They actually were top five in rushing total and defensive efficiency last year. By any measure, any way you slice it, the Oklahoma State defense was flat out elite in 2021. But that's a major part of my concern because as good as they were defensively last year, they are suffering massive losses from that elite defense. In fact, they're only 128th in the country in returning defensive production, according to Bill Connolly and his S&P Plus numbers. They're actually only returning 37% of their production from 2021. That's tough, guys. And the thing about a team like Oklahoma State, especially defensively, they are not a recruiting superpower. This is not a team that year in, year out is going to just reload. Like Georgia, for instance, right? Georgia lost a ton off of their defense from last year, but they've been recruiting so well for so long that it's, in a lot of ways, just reloading for Georgia. Do they have a lot of young players? Of course. There's a lot of experience? Yeah. Are there going to be some bumps in the road? Yes. But they're still going to be really good defensively. They're not going to fall off the face of the earth because they just reload. Oklahoma State doesn't recruit like that. I'm not saying it's a complete rebuild for them on that side of the ball, but it it certainly leans more that way than it does just reloading because, again, they don't recruit at that level year in and year out. They have to develop and build up to that point. They don't, they don't just slide in guys when they have all these losses and say, you know what, we're going to perform at the same level as we did last year. That's not what a team like Oklahoma State is able to do. They're losing six of their top eight tacklers, losing Malcolm Rodriguez, who was a stud for them last year, almost a complete overhaul in their secondary. They do get Con Oliver and Brock Martin back, who were fantastic edge rushers for them last year. They combined for 20 and a half sacks. But maybe more than anything with this defense, not only are they losing all that personnel, but they're losing Jim Knowles. 
their defensive coordinator, who's the architect of that defense. He's off to Ohio State. Ryan Day brought him in to Columbus to try to fix their defensive issues, just like he fixed Oklahoma State's defensive issues. And again, let's be real, guys. That Oklahoma State 12-2 team last year was driven by their defense. If they would have had a traditional Oklahoma State defense last year, to pair with what was a subpar offense, a very average offense at best, that's probably a 7-5 and five team because their offense wasn't good enough to carry them. It just simply was not. And I think you're going to see that sort of regression to the mean for the Oklahoma State defense, at least in 2022. So the question becomes, is the offense ready to take that next step and become like a traditional Oklahoma State type offense where they are carrying the team and they are putting the team on the back and they're putting up massive points? Can you expect that from this Oklahoma State offense in 2022? Personally, I don't think so. Last season, they were 58% run. When you look at their splits, they ran the ball 58% of the time. That's what they leaned on offensively. Jalen Ward was really good for them as a a running back, really kind of came out of nowhere. And he'd been okay, done some good things in his career prior to that, but he'd never been that kind of guy. But he was a 1,200-yard rusher last year, 11 touchdowns. That guy is gone. Spencer Sanders, at quarterback, was also a big part of the running game. He's back, but without Jalen Warren, with Spencer Sanders, who is a competent passer, but he's not shown to be anything more than that. And when you look at this Oklahoma State team going into 2022, what I see with all of the, the losses on defense, what I expect to be some defensive regression with a less dynamic run game with the loss of Jalen Warren, what I see is a team that is going to have to put far more responsibility for its success on the shoulders of its quarterback, Spencer Sanders. And again, he's fine. He's not a bad quarterback. I mean, he's fine. He's competent. But the reality is he's never been more than a complimentary piece for the Cowboys. He's never been the featured guy. I mean, last year was 2,800 yards, 6.9 yards per attempt, 20 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, decent numbers. I mean, ho-hum numbers, average numbers. But nothing that he did last year, nothing that he's done in his past really at all since he's been in Oklahoma State has screamed to me that he is the kind of guy that's going to be able to put this team on his back and carry them to a 8, 9, 10 win season. I just haven't seen that from him. And I think this year he's going to have to be that guy. And I just, I don't, I don't expect that from him. I just really don't. And here's the other thing with Oklahoma State. The Big 12, at least the traditional powers in the Big 12, weren't great last year. Texas, we know, is five and seven. I don't know if Texas is back. I know they think they are, but we'll see. Maybe we'll see. But I I would at least say right now, Texas will be better. They're going to be better than five and seven. Oklahoma, Oklahoma was good last year, but there wasn't a a vintage Lincoln-Riley Oklahoma team. Will they be better this year? That's a big question mark. Obviously, there's a lot of transition there. Kansas State, I think it's going to be better this year. TCU, we will get to them a little bit later on. I think they will be better this year. West Virginia with JT Daniels. I think they are going to be better this year. Even a team like Kansas, a bottom feeder like Kansas, they're going to be better. They're going to be a tougher out this year. So I don't think there's a dominant team in the Big 12, but I think all those other teams, most of those other teams, will be better than they were last year. And the reality is, I don't think Oklahoma State will be as good as they were last year. And it just wasn't a dominant Oklahoma State team last year. Sure, they went 12-2, and and they deserve a ton of credit for that, but they played a ton of close games. They played eight one-score games last year. They were 6-2 and two in those one-score games. Generally speaking, 
that's not replicable from one year to the next when the margins are that small. And they do deserve some credit for being poised in the moment and being able to grit and grind and find a way to win those one-score games. But there's also a serious luck component when you're talking about winning one-score games that way. And it's just hard to imagine with margins that small last year and a Big 12 that I don't think was as strong as it's going to be this year, it's hard to imagine those same bounces are going to go Oklahoma State's way this year. And if you look at their schedule, yeah, I think they'll sweep the non-conference. I, I don't think that's going to be much of an issue for them. But I right now, if I'm looking at their schedule, this is kind of my process when I'm going through and picking all these games, looking at the win totals. I have for sure losses for them, Texas at Baylor at Oklahoma. Now, when I say for sure losses, I understand they could win one of those games. But I right now am projecting them to lose to Texas at home, at Baylor, at Oklahoma. If they lose those three games, which right now I feel pretty confident in projecting, I got to push at the very least. And, and hey, no harm, no foul. You don't make any money, but you don't lose any either. No harm, no foul. And then outside of those three games, you've got Texas Tech at home, at TCU, at Kansas State, at Kansas, which I know it's Kansas, but I do think they'll be better this year, Iowa State and West Virginia. So what, we, what you would need if you place this bet is, if they do lose to Texas, if they lose to Baylor, if they lose to Oklahoma, then we need them to lose one of those six other conference games. Two of those six, if they luck up and beat Texas, Baylor, or OU. And look, yes, they could upset Texas or Baylor or Oklahoma. That's certainly feasible, certainly possible. But still, even if they win one of those games, then okay, whatever. They just need to lose two of those six other games, whether it's Texas Tech, at TCU, at Kansas State, at Kansas, Iowa State, West Virginia. I think they go three and three at best in that group of six toss-up games. So again, like I, this is the iffiest one for me because they do have some talent coming back. I mean, they at least have a, a returning quarterback. Gundy's coming back. It's, a, it's an established system, but they're losing so much on defense. I know they have Derek Mason coming in as the new DC, and he's largely been very good wherever he's been, but it's still going to be a transition and you lose Jim Knowles, you lose Jalen Warren at running back, who was a big part of what they did offensively. I don't believe in Spencer Sanders as being the feature piece for that team that can carry them. And if you look at the schedule, I got three losses. That puts them at nine wins right there. And if they just screw up and lose somewhere else along the way, which I think is honestly very likely, I've got Oklahoma State going under nine wins. It's at number 10 for a reason, because it's the one I'm least confident in. But but with all the key losses from last year that played a major role in them being a 12-win team. I feel good about Oklahoma State going under nine wins in 2022. All right, let's move on to the next team on the list of the best win total bets heading into the 2022 college football season is the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Now, this one I've got at over under seven wins. And most of the different books out there have them at seven, seven and a half, but you can get the best odds on Minnesota right now on the Barstool Sportsbook. I've got them going over seven wins on Barstool. Now, I did not go into this process when I was trying to put together this list back in May. I did not go into this process thinking that Minnesota would be a team that would make my list. They were not on my radar, to be entirely honest with you. But the more research I've done, the more I've gone back and watched games from last year throughout this summer, the more I like this Minnesota team. 
And I'm not sure how many people out there actually realize Minnesota won nine games last year. They flew entirely under the radar, which is a big reason why they weren't on my radar coming into this process, putting together this list. But here's the thing that makes Minnesota's 2021 season even more impressive. Not only did they win nine games in the Big Ten, I know it's the Big Ten West, but still the Big Ten, but they did it without Mo Ibrahim, their best running back. He was their starter coming into the season. If you remember the last time we saw that dude was week one last year, Thursday night against Ohio State at home, and he was tearing the Buckeyes up. He was running all over and put a buck 60 on him and then got hurt late in that game, missed the rest of the season. So they won nine games without him for essentially the entirety of the season. And then a few short weeks later, Ibrahim's backup, Trey Potts, who was actually playing really well in relief work, he goes out for the year. Then their third guy, Bryce Williams, he got knocked out for the rest of the year a couple of weeks after that when he was starting to get it on a roll. And for a team, an offense that was built entirely around the ground game, I just find that incredibly impressive that they were still able to find a way and grind their way to nine wins. Was it an elite season for them? No. But when you factor in all the injuries they dealt with, especially the running back position, which was supposed to be the engine of that entire offense coming into the season, I just find that very impressive. And Mo Ibrahim, he's back. He's back in 2022. Trey Potts is back in 2022. That's a hell of a two-headed monster there at the running back position for, again, a team that is built offensively around the ground game, working play action shots down the field off of that. But Ibrahim and Potts are not the only important players coming back for this offense. Tanner Morgan is back for what will be his third full year. So he actually started parts of his freshman year, but it'll be his third full year as a starter. Now, let's be entirely honest here, all right? I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods. I believe Minnesota is going to go over this number, but we've got to look at this picture in totality. Last year... Tanner Morgan regressed in a massive way. He threw for only 2,000 yards, 10 touchdowns, to nine interceptions. He was not good. And again, I just find it miraculous that some way, somehow, with all those injuries at running back and with a quarterback who threw for just over 2,000 yards, way through throw for 2,044 yards, 10 touchdowns, nine interceptions, with your top three running backs going out for the year, and you still find a way to win nine games, go six and three in the Big Ten beating Purdue, beating Wisconsin along the way, giving Ohio State a game in week one. I mean, Ohio State pulled away late because they had too much talent, but it was only a two-touchdown game. Ohio State pulled away 45-31, but there were portions of that game where Minnesota was actually winning that football game. So quarterback play unquestionably was a problem for Minnesota last year. I mean, if Morgan was even just okay last year, if he, if he was just average, that's probably a 10 or 11 win team. And even with as poorly as he played, it still should have been a 10 or 11 win Minnesota team. They lost at home to Bowling Green 14 to 10. Some way, somehow that happened. They lost at home to Illinois 14 to 6. Some way, somehow that happened. Well, how does a team like Minnesota lose to a team like Bowling Green? Well, when your quarterback goes 5 of 13 for 59 yards, no touchdowns and two interceptions, yeah, that's how you lose to Bowling Green. How do you lose to Illinois, who was below average last year? That's what Illinois was. And first year, Brett Bielema there in Champaign. Your quarterback goes 15 to 27, 
180 yards, 55% completion percentage, no touchdowns, two interceptions. That's how you lose those games. The simple fact was is that Tanner Morgan was a hindrance to that team last year. He was. But it's kind of mysterious because here's the thing. It was only two short years ago back in 2019. Remember when Minnesota made that run? They beat Penn State at home in the snow, right? Well, back in 2019, it was Tanner Morgan. He was the dude that led Minnesota to an 11-win season. And he was a big part of that success back in 2019. He wasn't just along for the ride. He threw for 3,200 yards, 30 touchdowns to 7 interceptions, 10.2 yards per attempt. So what happened? Yes, there's the COVID interlude in between there in 2020, but what happened from 2019 to 2021 where he goes from 3,200 yards to 2,000 yards, 30 touchdowns to 10 touchdowns, 10.2 yards per attempt to 8.2 yards per attempt? What happened there? And I think there's two general ways to look at this. You might look at it and say, well, I mean, come on, guys. Tanner Morgan, he's just a below average quarterback. That's who he is. He has below average physical traits. His numbers back in 2019 were just inflated by a pair of NFL wide receivers and Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson. Without those guys on the roster, he's exposed. He is who he is. That's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it would be this. Maybe he was the victim of just coaching malpractice last year by offensive coordinator Mike Sanford, who, yes, did get the boot after 2021. They were top 25 in offensive efficiency and number seven in S&P Plus offense in 2019, compared to number 85 last season in offensive efficiency and number 63 in S&P Plus offense. So was it Tanner Morgan, or did it have more to do with the offensive scheme and the offensive coordinator, the play caller, and Mike Sanford? Because he was not the coordinator and the play caller back in 2019. So I think those are the two ways to look at it. And whatever your agenda might be or whatever your loyalties might be, you probably have a different way to look at it. But we're going to find out. We're going to find out this year because re-enter offensive coordinator Kirk Sriracha who is back. He went to Penn State after 2019, got the boot from Penn State, just didn't really jive with with James Franklin 2020. And he is back now officially as the offensive coordinator, the play caller for Minnesota. And he's reunited with Tanner Morgan. So we're going to find out, was it more about Kirk Soraka and him just really activating the skill set that Tanner Morgan has? Or was Morgan's success in 2019 more just a function of having two elite NFL caliber wide receivers on the roster? Like most things, I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle there. I mean, if you've watched Tanner Morgan play, I mean, you'd have to be foolish to sit here and try to argue that he has elite physical traits. He absolutely does not. He's got an average arm. He's not particularly mobile. And the reality is he just made some poor decisions in 2021 that he didn't make back in 2019. But I also do think that the situation they were in offensively with their coordinator, Mike Sanford, and the scheme they're running just didn't really fit what made Morgan so successful back in 2019. And look, this year, Morgan might not have Bateman and Johnson to work with out wide, but Chris Altman-Bell is back. And he's, look, Chris Altman-Bell is not the same caliber receiver as Rashad Bateman or Tyler Johnson. He's not one of those kind of guys, but he's still a really good Big Ten receiver. He's back this year. He dealt with a couple injuries early last year, but he's back. In fact, their top five wide receivers from last year 
are back this year in 2022. So if you mix all those offensive ingredients together, your top two running backs are back. You return your top five wide receivers. Kirk Soraka is back as offensive coordinator and play caller. I think that's a recipe for at least some level of a resurgence for the Minnesota offense. I do not expect Minnesota to be in the top 25 in S&P Plus, but I think they could certainly be back inside the top 50. And if they're inside the top 50, inside the top 40, which I think is reasonable for this offense with all the elements coming back, all those ingredients that I just mentioned, I think this is a Minnesota team that could potentially challenge for the Big Ten West title. But it wasn't the offense that was the driving force behind that nine-win Minnesota team last year. And I probably should have started with the defense because that's what drove this boat for them. They were top 15 nationally in yards per play allowed. They were top 10 nationally in scoring defense and finished the year number eight nationally in S&P plus defense. So by any measure, this was an elite defense last year and no one really expected that coming into the last season because in 2020, they were one of the worst defenses in the entire country. They were 121st nationally in yards per play allowed. They gave up 6.9 yards per play in 2020, almost seven yards per play. That's virtually impossible for a power five team to do that, but somehow Minnesota's defense did that in 2020. But here's the thing with 2020. That's the COVID year, right? And that's the COVID interlude. I take all those results with a very fine grain of salt, but you got to give the Minnesota defense coordinator, Joe Rossi, a lot of credit because they came back swinging in 2021, and they turned around what was one of the worst defenses in the country into one of the nation's best defenses in 2021. I honestly don't think it's reasonable to expect them to be that good defensively this year. They are losing most of their top players in their front seven on the defensive line and at linebacker. They do return seven starters, but they're missing some key pieces. They hit the transfer portal pretty hard, brought in some guys they expect to contribute right away. But the reality is, I mean, it's just going to be really tough for Minnesota to expect to go back-to-back years being in the top 10 nationally in scoring defense. I don't think they're going to fall off the face of the earth, but I also don't expect them to be among the nation's truly elite defenses in 2022. But that's okay because I think they are going to be able to compensate for that with what they're going to be able to do offensively, with all those ingredients, with all those guys coming back, with Kirk Soraka coming back. So for all those reasons, I do feel really good about Minnesota going over that seven-win total. Now, what I probably love most about Minnesota is that they have an identity. They truly know who they are. And programs like that, like Wisconsin fits this small. A lot of those Big Ten West teams, honestly, whether it's Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, they know who they are. They recruit to who they are. They recruit to a system. And that's why those teams are so consistently good. They might have a cap on their ceiling. Like Wisconsin's a great example of this. Wisconsin's never going to truly be a national title contender, in my opinion. Now, maybe one year they just they strike lightning in a bottle and it all works out for them, but I just don't ever really see Wisconsin contending to win a national title. Could they get in the playoff? Sure, that could happen, but winning a national title is a very different thing. Just ask Oklahoma. Get in the playoffs, that's one thing. Actually winning once you get in the playoffs, that's a different animal. There's a cap. There's just a cap on their ceiling because they don't have that kind of talent up and down the roster. But again, they know who they are. They have a system. 
They understand what their identity is and they recruit to that identity, to that system. And that's why they are so consistent year in, year out. That's why they're always up there in the conversation for making an appearance in the Big Ten Championship game, for winning eight, nine, maybe 10 games a year. And I think Minnesota under P.J. Fleck has kind of evolved into that where they have figured out who they are and what works for them. And I have a lot of respect for that. I think that's a big part of why they brought Kirk Soraka back this year because they know he was part of that formula. But when you look at the schedule, I think their non-con is a cakewalk. They're going to get to 3-0 real quick. You got New Mexico State, Western Illinois, and Colorado at home. Colorado might be one of the worst teams in the Power 5 this year. Minnesota did lose to Bowling Green last year. That game still, some way, somehow, that happened. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. In fact, that one really frustrated me. I had money on Minnesota in that game. And uh, yeah, actually, I just had them to win. It was a small parlay. All they needed to do was win. But they couldn't even do that. But that's neither here nor there. I won't hold that against them. But New Mexico State, West Illinois, Colorado at home, those should be three wins. And then if you look at the conference slate, you know they're always going to play Illinois and Northwestern, at least right now because they are part of the Big Ten West. But they also get Rutgers in crossover play from the Big Ten East. That should be three wins right there. Again, I know they lost Illinois at home last year. They are better than Illinois. It's not impossible for them to lose that game, but I still think it's highly unlikely, even though it's at Illinois this year. I've got Minnesota winning that game. I got them winning at home against Northwestern, at home against Rutgers. So if you throw those three games along with the three non-conference wins, that's 6-0 right there. And then here's another big reason why I really like this win total for Minnesota. They avoid Michigan and Ohio State in crossover play from the Big Ten East. They do get Penn State and Michigan State. They actually have to go to Michigan State and to Penn State, but they also get Rutgers at home. I do not think they will beat Penn State because that game has already been designated in the preseason as the annual whiteout game. That's really asking a lot for the Golden Gophers to go into Happy Valley and win that football game. If they're able to win that game, they they are probably going to win the Big Ten West. And I guess it's not impossible, but I certainly wouldn't say it's likely at this point. I think that one is going to be a loss. But at Michigan State... I think they can win that game. There's no Kenneth Walker this year. They're going to put a lot more on quarterback Peyton Thorne. Is he ready for that? We don't know the answers to that question. We'll see. We'll find out. That'll be a tough game, no doubt about it. But I think that's certainly more winnable than at Penn State. But the rest of the schedule, you look at it, you got Purdue at home, Iowa at home, and you got at Nebraska, at Wisconsin. So to go over seven, all we need them to do is go two and four in those six games at Michigan State. Purdue, at Penn State, at Nebraska, Iowa, at Wisconsin. Now, I don't like the fact that four of those six games are on the road, but I really do believe in this Minnesota team. I believe they can at least split those six games and go three and three in those games. I don't think Penn State's a true toss-up game. I think that's probably a Penn State win, but the other five I do believe are toss-up games. Those are swing games. They could go either way, and I just love the veteran presence on this Minnesota team. I love the fact they got Kirk Sharaka back. You have essentially a fourth-year starter at quarterback, at least a three-and-a-half-year starter at quarterback. You got Mo Ibrahim back, Trey Potts back, Chris Altman-Bell, a defense that is losing some pieces but found something last year, and I think that they should still be a good, solid Big Ten defense. I've got Minnesota going 9-3 and three in the regular season with a shot at 10 wins in postseason play. All right, guys, let's go to my neck of the woods for this next one, and let's take a look at the Arkansas Razorbacks. 
I absolutely love this bet. I am in love with it. By far the biggest future bet I have laid to date this preseason is on Arkansas to go over six and a half wins. Now it's later in the summer. The lines have moved a little bit based on public action. And it's at this moment in time, it's hard to find the Arkansas win total at six and a half anymore. In fact, I think the only place right now that you can get it at six and a half is at win bet. But just keep watching, see if it moves back down to six and a half, see where you can find it there. But even if you can only find it at seven, even if this number is still at seven, I like Arkansas to go over seven wins. But again, I got it at six and a half, so I'm going to say over six and a half. I like six and a half better than seven, obviously. But even if you can only get it at seven, I'd go with it. Because I think at the very worst, you're going to push at that number. Honestly, I'm still speechless. I am still speechless, and I thank the Lord every day that I was able to get Arkansas at over six and a half. I just, just find that unbelievable. I couldn't believe the number when I first saw it back in May, and I still can't believe it because there are so many reasons to like this team. And foremost among those reasons has to be the continuity that this team brings into 2022. They are one of 21 teams, and I got to give credit where credit is due. This is a stat from Stats of War on Twitter, and it's a great follow. If you guys don't follow Stats of War, if you don't follow Parker on Twitter, you definitely should give you a really analytical look at not just college football, but college basketball, college baseball, sports in general. Strongly recommend you follow them there. But Stats of War, Parker has had this stat a couple of times. He's posted throughout the offseason. I think he's updated a couple of different times. But Arkansas is on this list, and I think this is a really important list. Arkansas is one of only 21 teams returning their head coach, their quarterback, and both coordinators. I think that continuity is huge. Now, does that guarantee success? No, of course not. You still have to have players, but that is a hell of a starting point. And Sam Pittman, you know, I'm a Georgia guy. I saw Sam Pittman up, up close and personal here for a couple of years, and he really helped fill out the Georgia offensive line room and just recruited at an absolute elite level and was a great ambassador for our program and a great force within our coaching staff, within our locker room. I was happy for him, but I did not want to see him go. And when Sam Pittman got hired by Arkansas, there are a lot of people pointing and laughing at that hire. But Sam Pittman has proven everyone wrong. I will be the first to probably admit here that Sam Pittman is not the right guy for every job. Would Sam Pittman be the right guy for the USC job? Would he be the right guy for the Ohio State job? No, he wouldn't be. But it doesn't matter. Sam Pittman doesn't coach at USC. He doesn't coach at Ohio State. Sam Pittman coaches at Arkansas, and he is the right guy for that job. And that's all that matters. And probably the best thing he did is that as soon as he got that job, he hired two badass coordinators and Kendall Bryles on offense and Barry Odom on defense. I mean, just two incredible hires and it has paid dividends because he's been able to keep those guys on staff. They were nine and four a year ago. And yes, they do lose Traylon Burks, who was probably the best player on the team. He was an elite wide receiver last year. But look at the rest of that offense. What do they actually return? Let's start with the O here. They return number one, their quarterback, KJ Jefferson. That's where you got to start. And the thing about K.J. Jefferson and this Arkansas offense, and I got to give Kendall Browse a lot of credit here, because Kendall Browse traditionally, 
I mean, hasn't always had these mobile quarterbacks like KJ Jefferson. Not really anybody like KJ Jefferson that runs the ball the way that he does. But Bryles has built that offense around Jefferson's skill set as a powerful dual threat runner. He's a dual threat guy, but he's not one of those guys. He's not RG3 is just going to beat you with speed. He's plenty fast enough, but he is a powerful runner. He's a downhill type quarterback, and he led the team in rushing last year. They also returned what ended up being the top two running backs at the end of last season. For them. They did not open the season as the top two running backs, but you get back Raheem Sanders, and Dominic Johnson. I really like both those guys. You can also throw A.J. Green in there as well, who's an explosive runner. Didn't get a ton of carries last year. They used him kind of a versatile role as receiver, running back, return guy, kind of an all-purpose player. But I think he'll get more touches this year in his second year on campus, and he is a dangerous playmaker for that Arkansas offense. And yes, again, they do lose Traylon Burks, a wide receiver. That certainly hurts, but they return four out of five starters along their offensive line. And for a team like Arkansas that is built the way that this offense is built and functions the way that it functions, returning four to five stars on the offensive line, that's far more important than losing a receiver like Traylon Burks because their offense, again, is built around the run game. They were 65% run last year. Now, you want to have a guy like Traylon Burks that can go up there and make you pay in man coverage because what they do essentially is they run the football, they run at you, run at you, run at you, and then they take play action shots off that. And they had an elite one-on-one receiver who was just able to win consistently out in space. So I'm not saying losing Burks doesn't hurt. It does. But if I had to pick between getting Burks back and four offensive linemen back from last year, I would take the four offensive linemen because I think that's more important to what Arkansas does and what they're built to do offensively. And then a receiver that you do throw in Jaden Hazelwood, who hasn't quite lived up to the five-star billing yet. He's a transfer from Oklahoma. He was a big-time five-star recruit a couple years back. He hadn't quite lived up to that. Injuries have been a part of that, but he is still extremely talented. And again, he was injured a lot at Oklahoma. At Arkansas, you get a new breath of life here, a new scheme, a chance to be the number one option. And I do think that Hazelwood will have his best year today. Will he have the kind of year that Burks had last year? I think that's a bit of a stretch. I wouldn't expect that. But I do expect Hazelwood to come closer to fulfilling that five-star height than he ever has yet to this point in his college career. And then at tight end, I really like Trey Knox. He's a converted wide receiver. In fact, as a freshman, it was it was Knox and Burks who I was like, man, those, those guys are pretty good. Like That's a good duo of receiver that Arkansas has to build around. Knott's kind of continued to grow a little bit and he kind of grew out of that receiver role. He's now a tight end, but he's one of those new age tight ends that can absolutely hurt you in space as a receiver. He really kind of started to get more playing time as the year wore on last year as he got more and more used to playing that position. And this year he projects to be their start at that position. They also have a guy named Hudson Henry who was pretty good in 2020 for them. Dealt with some injuries last year. He's back this year. So I think it's a really nice one-two punch at tight end for Arkansas. And then the X factor might be a guy named Malik Hornsby, who ostensibly is their backup quarterback. And I think he still is their backup quarterback. He was last year. And he came in and played some snaps and played in some situations for Jefferson because Jefferson got banged up a little bit. I mean, Jefferson's a big, thick dude, but he runs a lot. So he always runs the risk of getting hurt, getting knocked out for a couple plays. And that happened from time to time last year. So we got to see a little bit of Malik Hornsby. Now, Malik Hornsby is similar in one respect that he is a dual threat guy, but he's a very different type of dual threat quarterback. He's not the Jefferson style guy who's just gonna like 
put his shoulder down and run through you, lean forward and grind out yards. That's really not his game. He's tall, skinny, lanky, but the dude can flat out fly. In fact, he runs so well, he's such an explosive athlete that the Arkansas offensive coaching staff, they have been trying to find ways since the spring to get him the ball if he's not going to be playing quarterback, to use him at receiver, to use him in the run game, to use him creatively, find ways to get the ball in Hornsby's hands because he is one of the most dynamic athletes on the entire team. He's not going to play over KJ Jefferson right now. So do you just want this guy sitting on the bench when he's one of your more dynamic athletes? The answer should be no, and it is no for Arkansas. I don't know exactly how they're going to use him, but the word is they're actively trying to find ways to utilize his abilities. And I believe he can be an X factor for this offense because he does have that kind of dynamic, explosive ability as a ball carrier. So as you can probably tell, I'm very high on what Arkansas returns on offense this year. On defense, we got to be honest here, there are some losses. Grant Morgan, Hayden Henry at inside linebacker, Joe Fouché, who for some reason decided to transfer out to LSU. Those guys were big parts of what they did defensively last year, and they are no longer with this team. They've moved on, either graduated or they have transferred out in the case of Joe Fouché. But that doesn't mean they don't have some players returning here. They do. Bumper Pool is back in the middle of that defense at inside linebacker. And he was, he wasn't, I guess, technically was not a starter for them last year. They had a three-man rotation at linebacker. All those guys, Grant Morgan, Henry, and Bumper Pool, they essentially all played equal snaps, more or less. And Bumper Pool is a guy that came back this year. He is going to be the dude for them in the middle. They also get Jalen Catlon back, who suffered through some injuries last year and wasn't quite the same player that he was in 2020. But he was an all-SEC player in 2020. He should be back healthy, and he should be a major shot in the arm for this Arkansas defense. They also add in former five-star Drew Sanders. You might remember that name. He transferred from Alabama. He started last year for Alabama. But then he got injured, and when he got injured, Dallas Turner was a true freshman last year. He came into the picture, and he really started to turn heads, became an explosive pass rusher for them. And so by the time Sanders was ready to go, it's like, well, you're not going to be playing much, man, because Dallas Turner's kind of taken over, and Sanders saw the writing on the wall. But that doesn't mean that Sanders himself is not a big-time player. It just means that Dallas Turner's that dude. But Sanders transfers out. He's now in Fayetteville. I am very interested to see how they actually utilize him, because in their 3-3-5 scheme defensively, they don't really have that pass rusher that a team like Alabama does that plays more traditional 3-4. They will play some even front stuff too, but he's not going to be putting his hand down the dirt rush in the passer. He's going to be standing up playing linebacker. And that's different from what he was asked to do at Alabama. He'll be playing more in space. So I'm very intrigued to see how he transitions to that role, but the talent is there. That's undeniable. And I have a ton of faith in Barry Odom to find a way to maximize the skill set of a talented player like Drew Sanders. And they bring in a couple of transfers, probably foremost among those guys is Dwight McLaughlin from LSU at cornerbacks. They kind of traded. You get Joe Fouché going to LSU, Dwight McLaughlin coming from LSU to Arkansas, playing cornerback for them. I expect him to play at a fairly high level in the SEC. So yeah, there are some losses. You can't get around that. But I do think there's a solid core returning, and I, I just have so much faith in Barry Odom. I think this guy's a miracle worker defensively. At least at Arkansas, he has been. He took what was the worst defense in the SEC in 2019 and has improved it by over 100 yards a game. He spearheaded a two-touchdown improvement scoring defense from 2019 to 2021. This guy knows how to coach defensive football. And again, it's 
it has been a key to their success for Sam Pittman to be able to keep Barry Odom, to keep Kendall Bryles on staff. And those guys had options. They could have gone to their places, but Sam Pittman just created a culture there. And I'm big on culture. He's created a culture. The players are buying in. The coaches are buying in. The players want to play for Sam Pittman. The coaches want to coach for Sam Pittman. It's just a great vibe in Fayetteville right now. And this program has a ton of momentum coming off of that Outback Bowl win over Penn State last season to give them a 9-4 season, which is such a long way from where they were under Chad Morris a couple years ago. Now, I will admit, my one big concern with Arkansas is clearly the schedule. And I I told you earlier, I'm still just in shock that I was able to get them at 6.5. But the reason for that is their schedule is one of the toughest in the country. There's no getting around that. It is one of the toughest schedules in all of America. They play in the SEC West, which is probably the toughest division in all of America, outside of maybe the Big Ten East. I think, obviously, those two would battle it out for supremacy in terms of who is the toughest division in America. The SEC West is certainly right up there. So it's that combined with, I mean, I'm just going to be real here. It can only be described as idiotic non-conference scheduling. I just don't understand why you would do this to yourself. Cincinnati at home to open the season. Why a Power 5 team would schedule Cincinnati, I do not know. And I'm not saying run scared. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just asking, what's the upside? If you are Arkansas, what is the upside of playing a team like Cincinnati? Because if you win that game, oh, well, who cares? No one pays attention because you were supposed to beat Cincinnati, right? You're Arkansas. You're an SEC team. That's an American Conference team. It's a G5 team, right? If you lose Cincinnati... Oh my God, you lost to a G5 team? And I know Cincinnati's a little bit of a different story because they did make the playoff last year, the first group of five team to make the playoff. But there's just no upside for a Power 5 team to schedule a group of five team like that. And the thing is, those group of five teams, especially group of five teams that are good like Cincinnati, that actually have the wherewithal and the type of players it takes to actually beat an SEC team potentially, they don't get a ton of opportunities to play games like this, to play Power 5 teams in the regular season. And they all have a chip on their shoulder anyway, right? They all think that they're Power 5 caliber type players. And when they get the opportunity to play those teams, they want to prove to you that somebody made a mistake and that they should be in the Power Five. So they're always hyped up to play these games, whereas the P5 team is kind of like, oh, you know, I mean, we want to win the game. I'm not saying we're not taking it seriously, but are we as hyped for Cincinnati as we would be for playing, oh, I don't know, let's say Iowa, just some random Power Five team. So I, I think ADs and football ops guys do their teams a disservice when they schedule group of five teams, especially contending group of five teams like that. But They schedule them, and they open with Cincinnati at home. Later in the year, they go to BYU. I don't know why you would schedule BYU. I don't know. Like, And they schedule BYU back when they weren't good. I mean, Arkansas has only been good for one year. I mean, Pittman started to make the turnaround in 2020, but 2018, 2019, flat out abysmal. One of the, if not the worst teams in Power 5, like right up there with Kansas. They were that bad. I mean, it was a long time between SEC wins for Arkansas. And during that stretch, they decided to schedule BYU. I don't, I don't know, man. Like that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me because BYU is going to be good. I know you don't really know that far in advance how good BYU is going to be when you play them in 2022, but it's a tough game. So since he at home at BYU, I think it's reasonable to expect a split here. I do expect them to beat Cincinnati with all that since he is losing off of last year's playoff team at BYU. I think it's going to be a, a tough battle and a little foreshadowing here. BYU might be a team that we discuss a little bit later on, maybe in this episode, maybe later in the week. We'll see. There might be a team that comes up. 
But I think they split there with those two games. I think they beat Missouri State. I mean, they're going to win that game. They've got Liberty at home, which, you know, with Hugh Freeze, they've been good. Obviously, they lose Malik Willis. I don't think they'll be as good this year. It's in Fayetteville. So I do expect Arkansas to win that game. So here are the wins I've got for Arkansas. South Carolina, Missouri State, Missouri, and Liberty. I think those are four. I hate to use the word guaranteed because there's no guarantee in college football. There's just not. That doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. But those are four games that I expect Arkansas to win this season. And then, like I said, I expect them to beat Cincinnati at home. So we can throw a Cincy in there. I think they're going to split between Cincy and at BYU. So there's five wins. They also draw South Carolina from the East, South Carolina and Missouri, and they don't draw Georgia. They drew Georgia last year, and they still managed to go 9-4. and four. There's no Georgia on the Arkansas schedule this year. They replaced them with South Carolina, who they get at home. So I've got five wins for Arkansas already. Again, Cincinnati, South Carolina, Missouri State, Missouri, Liberty at home. All of those games, except for Missouri, are at home, and I just happen to think that Arkansas is a good bit better than Missouri this year. So there's five wins right now. The only game I'm looking at on their schedule right now that I'm going to say, again, I hate to use the word guarantee, but we'll use it for this purpose. The only game I see as a guaranteed loss for them is Alabama. And look, Alabama absolutely should beat Arkansas, but it's in Fayetteville. It's not impossible that Arkansas could pull the upset there, but still highly unlikely. Let's say Alabama's a loss. And then likely losses, again, I said they split between Cincy and at BYU. I think at BYU, that's going to be a tough hill to climb. That's a likely loss. So there's two losses. I'm at five and two. And then you got the toss-up games. These are the swing games. You've got Texas A&M. You've got at Mississippi State. A&M's a neutral side game in Arlington. At Mississippi State, at Auburn, LSU, and Ole Miss, both at home. I need them to win two out of those five games, out of those five toss-ups, those five swing games, to go over six and a half. And again, if you get them at seven, two wins out of those five toss-up games gives you a push. So no harm, no foul. When you look at those five games, again, only two of them are on the road at Mississippi State, at Auburn. Texas A&M neutral site, LSU, Ole Miss at home. I think Arkansas this year is clearly better than Auburn. I know it's at Auburn. That's a tough place to play. It'll be a tough battle for them. I just think they're better. I think they're more established than, than Auburn is right now, and they should beat Auburn. I think they're more established than LSU. I think Brian Kelly is going to do a really good job at LSU. LSU has some elite pieces, guys like B.J. Ojolari on defense as a pass rusher. That guy is elite. Kayshawn Boutte is an elite wide receiver, but there's still a lot of questions at quarterback. In fact, there are questions all over that office. They actually only have two returning starters. Defensively, I think LSU's going to be pretty good. I think Ali Gay, Jacqueline Roy, Mason Smith, that's a really good defensive line. Booking by B.J. Ojolari as that pass rusher. Micah Baskerville, I think it's a guy that could break out as an inside linebacker for this year. So I expect the LSU defense to be good. The LSU offense with the transition year, Brian Kelly's new offense, only two returning starters. I've got some questions there for LSU offensively. And that game is in Fayetteville. I think I would say right now on paper, advantage Arkansas. We'll see once we actually get to the season and see these teams in action. But if I had to project right now, based off what we know from last year and who's returning for these teams, and the fact that LSU is transitioning to an entirely new staff and Arkansas is now going into year three of a, of a staff that's built a really good culture there, I would give Arkansas the edge in that game. Ole Miss 
there's a lot of turnover at Ole Miss. I mean, it's not just the players. I mean, you know, Kiffin's had a lot of fun this offseason talking about himself as the portal king. And you can fill some holes in the portal, but I, I'm always very hesitant when a team, a program, has to rely so much on the portal in one given year. But then you also lose your offensive coordinator in Jeff Levy. You lose your defensive coordinator in DJ Durkin. They brought in some talented players out of the portal. We know they got Jackson Dart from USC, and he's a highly touted guy. But their defense is still one of the worst in the SEC, and they're replacing their defensive coordinator. Again, I'm not saying that it's a guarantee for Arkansas. Ole Miss could absolutely come to Fayetteville and win that football game. But right now, based off who's returning on the field, who's returning on the coaching staff, I like Arkansas to beat Ole Miss going into this season. Arkansas beat A&M last year. That's a, that is the definition of a toss-up game at a neutral venue, Jerry's World in Arlington. We'll see who wins that game, but Arkansas could certainly win that game. At Mississippi State, I think Mississippi State's an underrated team this year. We'll talk about them more in the coming weeks, but that's a game that Arkansas could win. Arkansas beat Mississippi State at home last year, but in reality, Mississippi State should have won that game. If they had just even a decent kicker, Mississippi State would have won that game. But those are two teams that are going to play, I think, a close game. Arkansas could win. They could lose. But when it comes to those swing games, Texas A&M, at Mississippi State, at Auburn, at LSU, at Ole Miss, I would absolutely lean towards Arkansas going 3-2 and two in those games than I would them going 2-3. and three. And I'm not sitting here telling you that I think Arkansas is going to contend for the SEC West title and that they're going to contend for 10 wins. That's not what I'm telling you. I think this Arkansas team is a 7-5, 9-3 type team with that schedule. I would not take them at 7.5, which is where you do see them at in a number of different books out there. But if it's at 6.5, it's 100% a no-brainer to me, which is, which is what I got them at. And again, I think at win bet, you can still get them at 6.5. But at 7, I would still take them at 7 because, again, if they only get 7 wins – that's at least a push, no harm, no foul. I just think this team has an established identity, is too well coached, there's too much continuity in year three with Sam Pittman, with almost no coaching turnover, and they have too many key pieces returning to only win six games. And if I got them at six and a half, that's what we're saying. I do not see Arkansas going six and six. I just simply don't see it. All right, guys, I've got two teams left for you today, and then later this week, I'll give you five more teams to wrap up my list of the top 10 best win total bets coming into the 2022 college football season. But coming up next, let's go to the group of five. Let's give those guys some love. We've been in the power five long enough. Let's talk about the Houston Cougars. Now, most books have their win total set at nine. And I think that's easy money, guys. Give me Houston over nine all day, please, and thank you. In fact, I think Houston is a legit group of five playoff threat. I am big on Houston this year. They are 35th nationally in Bill Conley's S&P Plus returning production list, and that's off a team that won 12 games last year. This is not a Houston team that won eight games last year, and they're 35th nationally in returning production. They won 12 games. They went undefeated in the AAC regular season last year, and they are returning 72% of their offensive production and 76% of their defensive production. Well, let's get a little bit more specific. What exactly are they returning? Well, offensively, 
they return one of the best quarterback wide receiver combos in all of America. And if you don't pay attention to group of five football, first off, you're missing out because it's a ton of fun to watch. But if you're not paying attention to group of five football, you might not know these names, but Clayton Toon and Nathaniel Dell were two of the best players in the AAC last year. Both those guys are coming back in 2022. Clayton Toon is going into his fourth year as a starter, guys. And to be entirely honest, his first couple years, I was never impressed with Clayton Toon. I was like, this guy's not good. Like, he's holding him back. But Dana Holgerson, give him credit. He stuck with Toon. He saw something in him, and it paid dividends last season. He made a huge jump last year, threw for 3,500 yards, completed 68% of his passes, 30 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. Toon was just a different dude last year, and he's back. And then Nathaniel Dell was one of the best receivers in all of America that no one really talked about. He was a 1,300-yard guy last year, 90 receptions, 12 touchdowns, put up 152 against Cincinnati, who we know was a great defense last year in the group of five. So it's not like Nathaniel Dell was just putting up numbers against also Rants. He put up 152 against the best defense that they played last year. Now, I don't love the fact that their top running back coming to this season, Alt McCaskill, he tore his ACL in the spring. He's out for this season. That sucks, but running backs are far more replaceable than receivers and quarterbacks are. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say that oh it's no big deal. Like it still hurts to lose a guy like that. You don't want to lose anybody. But if you're talking about okay, who would you rather lose, a running back, a receiver or a quarterback? Hands down it's the running back. So while it's a blow, it's just not as big of a blow as it would have been if it was Clayton Toon or Nathaniel Dell that went down. So they've got two legit playmakers on offense coming back on defense. They've got Derek Parrish and DeAnthony Jones, who tied for first on the team in sacks. Both guys are back this year defensively. Their leading tackler, and the guy who was really the heart of the defense in the middle of their defense last year, linebacker Donovan Mutant, he is back. And here's the thing, guys. You might not think of Houston and Daniel Holgerson as being a, a defensive-led team, but that's what they were last year. They were really good on offense. Don't get me wrong. They were but they were outstanding on defense. They were top 20 nationally in yards per play and top 20 nationally in scoring defense. And this is year four of Holgo in Houston. Four years means he's had four recruiting cycles and he's had four years to build up that roster and four years to build his culture. And they went through that whole De'Eric King fiasco his first couple years there, but they've weathered that storm. It was it was Clayton Tuna to fill in for De'Eric King. And they weathered that storm and they've come out the other side and they are better off for it. And I truly do think they are poised to make a run to the American Conference title. And who knows, maybe even more if things swing their way. Houston was really good last year, guys. I mean, no one really paid attention to them. I know it's a group of five and they were overshadowed by Cincinnati. But again, they went undefeated in, in American Conference play last year. They lost to Texas Tech the first game of the year, but they were really good after that. And they gave Cincinnati a, a game of sorts. They ended up losing by two touchdowns, but it wasn't an absolute blowout there. But Cincinnati, in their total yardage differential, guys, which is a number you'll get used to this with if you listen to this podcast, I use this a lot to measure how good a team is. I like both total yards differential and total points differential, but it's very simple. Total yards differential, what are you doing? You're simply taking the total number of yards your offense gained, and then you subtract the total number of yards your defense surrendered from that total, and that gives you your total yardage differential. To give you a reference point, if you're plus like 2,000 total yards, like in your total yards differential, that is absolutely elite. Like for example, Georgia was plus 2,700 yards last year. Alabama, I think, was plus 2,800 yards. Ohio State was, I think, 
2,600, 2,700 yards. And then if you're anywhere around like a like plus a thousand yards, then you're an eight to nine win team on average. Of course, turnovers and red zone scoring percentage, all those things can skew things to a degree. But I think total yards differential is a really good way to go about looking at how good a team actually was. And Houston last year was plus 1,500 yards, which is right in line with what they were as an 11-1 group of five team in the regular season last year. And they also outscored their opponents by more than two touchdowns. So it wasn't like they were just squeaking by and finding ways with smoke and mirrors to win these football games. No, they were beating teams and beating teams handedly. Now, when you look at the schedule, I will admit it's it's a little trickyish in non-con play. They do have to play at UTSA and Texas Tech to open the season. Like back-to-back to open the season, you got two row games at Texas San Antonio, who, by the way, won 12 games last year, and at Texas Tech, who wasn't great last year. They made it to a bowl game, but they have a new coaching staff, but Joe McGuire's done a really good job for them in his short time there on staff, kind of building some momentum and building some hype around that program. And I, I think that UTSA is a game that Houston should win. Yes, UTSA was good last year. They were also 12-2, and just like Houston was but they weren't as good as Houston. Again, here, I'll bring back total yards differential. So Houston was plus 1560 last year in their total yards differential. UTSA was plus 900, and they did that versus a weaker schedule. I mean, the fact is Conference USA schedule is not as tough as an American Conference schedule. It's just not. There's different tiers there. So I think UTSA is a good team. I respect them. It's not going to be a cakewalk for Houston, but with what Houston returns this year, I do expect them to go into UTSA and win that football game. Texas Tech week two on the road will be a tricky game. Absolutely, that's going to be a tricky game. I'm very intrigued by what Texas Tech is going to be able to do this year with Joey McGuire. He's kind of breathed some life into that program. Is exactly what that program needs. They were 6-6 six and six last year, but again, let's go back to total yards differential here. They were only plus 150. It wasn't a case where they were 6-6 six and six and you know they, they should have been like 8-4. and four. No, like plus 150 means you're about 6-6. Six and six. You aren't always what your record says you were in college football because no two schedules are created equal, but Texas Tech really was exactly what their record says they were last year. They were plus 150. They were actually outscored by their opponents last year, not by much, by one-tenth of a point. But technically, they were outscored by their opponents last year. Now, they did beat Houston last year. They won at Houston last year to open the season when they were fully healthy. So Texas Tech, of course, can win this game at home and beat Houston. It's a Power 5 team. Of course, they can win that game. But again, I think Houston absolutely can go in there and win that game. No, there's no guarantee. But I think that's a game that they can win. But let's just say, for argument's sake, they split those two row games to open the season. Let's say they win at UTSA, they lose at Texas Tech and call days. They split those games. Well, what does the rest of their schedule look like? They avoid both Cincinnati and UCF in the regular season, which are the two other leading preseason contenders for the AAC title. So that certainly helps. We don't play either of those teams in the regular season. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, they don't have Cincy. They don't have UCF on the schedule in the regular season. Who else are they losing to? They only have four AAC road games. I mean, are they going to lose to Memphis? I mean, they got to go to Memphis. That can be a tough place to play. Memphis has been a good program, but Mike Norvell is not coaching there anymore. Justin Fuente is not coaching there anymore. They were 6-6 six and six last year. That's, again, that's a game that's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to be easy. Houston should go in there and beat Memphis. They should. This season, they should go in there and beat them. At SMU, that was a big game last year. I was in Jacksonville, Florida at the Georgia-Florida World's Largest Outdoor Cocktail Party game. Came back 
that night and watch Houston play SMU last year. It was a really tight game, a really fun game to watch. Houston ended up edging them out at home. That game, the return games at SMU this year, but Sonny Dykes is gone. He's gone to TCU. SMU's bringing in Rhett Lashley from Miami, who was their offensive coordinator, brand new coach. And just like Memphis, SMU could be Houston at home. Like crazier things have happened, but again, I also expect Houston to win that football game. So maybe they drop one of those AAC games. They just don't play well. They don't show up. Things like that happen in college football. Maybe. I just have a really hard time seeing Houston drop two AAC games, especially when they don't have to play Cincinnati or UCF in the regular season. And if they sweep UTSA and Texas Tech to open the season, which is very possible. I'm not calling it likely at this point, but certainly possible. Well, you might as well cash this bet now. Like if you put money down on this bet, if you take the risk and you responsibly put a wager down on this bet and they win those first two games at UTSA and at Texas Tech, might as well cash the bet right then. Like it's going to happen. They're not going to lose three games in the AAC barring some catastrophic injuries on that team. I've personally got Houston going 11-1. I got them losing to Texas Tech on the road and then running the table in the regular season through the AAC just like they did last year. I think this is a push at the absolute worst, but I feel very confident in Houston going over nine wins. And finally, we've got one more team to talk about today to close out the first five on this list, and we'll close it out with the second half of the list later on this week. But the last team that I want to talk about today are the TCU Horned Frogs. And I understand this one might seem risky at first glance, but I love this pick. I really do. So what is the pick? Well, the win total on most books out there still today for TCU is six and a half. I love the over for TCU this season. Over six and a half wins for TCU. And I know, again, this seems a little risky because TCU was not good last year. In fact, it got so bad for them that their longtime head coach, the guy who built the entire program, Gary Patterson, he got shown the door. He's now at Texas trying to help Sark figure things out in Austin. So I get why there might be some hesitation when I sit here and tell you, hey guys, I love TCU over six and a half. But guys, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I've already put a significant, responsibly, but I've put a significant wager on this bet myself. In fact, I took it a step further. I took a flyer on TCU to win the entire Big 12 at plus 2,800. I didn't put a ton on it, but those are fantastic odds. And I know that sounds crazy to win the Big 12. What are you talking about, Tyler? Did you not see how bad they were last year? I mean, yeah, I did. I watched that team play all last year. But hey, Baylor, guys, Baylor had the second worst odds to win the league last year. And what did they do? Oh, yeah, they went and won the Big 12. Now, do I really think that TCU is going to win the Big 12 this year? No, probably not. But I think they have a shot just like no one thought Baylor was going to win the Big 12 coming into last season, but there were a few people out there that thought, hey, you know, why not? Let's take a flyer. They might have a shot to do it. And I kind of feel that way about TCU coming into this season. I really do. I think TCU has a shot. No, they are not the favorite and they probably won't win it. It's very unlikely that they will. But when the odds are plus 2,800, why not put 20 bucks down and see what happens when you see a team that you're kind of intrigued by? And that's exactly what I did here. And the offense for TCU last season 
was not the problem. They were top 10 nationally in offensive efficiency, and it will not be the problem this year either because they essentially return everyone. They are returning 82% of their offensive production from last year. They have two options at quarterback, whether it's Max Duggan, who's been the guy for a couple years now, whether it's Chandler Morris, who replaced Max Duggan at times last year and played really well when he was given his opportunity. They have two options. And you know what, guys? Two options is better than one option. I think they legitimately have two guys that they can go out and win football games with at the quarterback position. And then they've got Quentin Johnston, who is one of the best wide receivers that no one talks about. And I get why no one really talked about him last year and why no one's really talking about him this offseason, because TCU wasn't good. They were not relevant. They weren't a factor in anything last year. But Quentin Johnston was really good and made some of those wow plays. This guy is explosive. He's tall, long, he's got great ball skills. He knows how to get open. He can make plays on the 50-50 balls. I really, really like Quentin Johnson. I think he's one of the better receivers in America that just absolutely no one is talking about. And I think as good as he was last year, I think he's going to flourish and be featured in Sonny Dyke's air raid system, which is a more pass-happy, pass-friendly offense. Now, they've run a version of the air raid under Sonny Cumbie and Doug Meacham in the past. And Doug Meacham is actually still on staff. He's not the offensive coordinator anymore. He's not calling plays anymore like he was last year, but he's still on staff. So there's a little bit of carryover and continuity there. But the fact is, Sonny Dyke's air raid system just continually churns out top offenses and quarterbacks put up big numbers in that system. Receivers, the caliber of Quentin Johnson are going to put up big numbers in that system. So he's coming back, which I think is huge on top of having their top two quarterbacks from from last year. Both guys played some, but it's not just Quentin Johnston. In fact, they bring back their top four pass catchers. Yes, they lose Zach Evans at running back. You guys might remember that name from recruiting. There's a lot of drama in his recruitment. Was initially committed to Georgia, was the number one running back recruit in the country, got into some trouble off the field. In fact, actually like with his coaching staff, there was some tension between him and the coaches on that staff a couple of different times or a couple of different instances when he was in high school. Georgia backed off and said like, we're going to go a different route. He ends up at TCU and played well for them last year, but he's transferred out. He's gone to Ole Miss because just like in high school, there were some issues behind the scenes and um, just didn't really work out for him at TCU. Hopefully for the guy's sake, he gets it together and it works out for him at Ole Miss. But as talented as Zach Evans is, and Zach Evans is insanely gifted. That's why people are willing to take a chance on him and, and take risk on him because he is that talented. But even though they're losing him, I think that could kind of be addition by subtraction, just from a locker room standpoint. Like I'm, I don't know the guy. I'm not calling the guy out. I'm just saying like there's been red flags wherever he's been. That's just the facts. That's just what what's happened. But with him gone, you don't have to worry about the drama behind the scenes. And you also have two guys coming back from last year that got a ton of carries themselves in Amari DiMercato and Kentrell Miller. And I think Kentrell Miller is the better back. DiMercato is a little bit more of a physical guy. Kentrell Miller is closer to what Zach Evans was in his style of running. Not quite that talented, but more that style. And honestly, Kentrell Miller put up basically identical numbers to Zach Evans last year. And he's not... The, he, well, let's just say he doesn't create some of those issues in the locker room that Zach Evans created. In fact, Kentrell Miller had more yards per rush and more touchdowns than Zach Evans did last year. So as you can see, there's a lot coming back offensively. A lot of guys on the offensive line are coming back. Skill, talent, everything is coming back. Everything's in place for this TCU offense, especially with Sonny Dykes coming in with this air raid system. Everything is in place for TCU's offense to be dynamic. One of the best, not only in the Big 12, but perhaps even in all of America. The question will be, as it was last year, 
defense because that was the clear problem. But the thing on defense for TCU this year, and I don't know if this is a good thing because they were so bad last year, but they returned a ton of production on that side of the ball as well. They also returned 82% of their production on the defensive side of the ball. They're actually ninth overall in Bill Conley's S&P Plus returning production numbers, which doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win a lot of games, but it's a fantastic starting point. Wouldn't you rather be returning that production than having an all-new roster? Personally, I would. You want that experience. And the, ex- the experience they're bringing back, it's talented. There are some talented players, whether it's Kintrell Miller, whether it's Quentin Johnston, whether it's Max Duggan, who I still believe in. I still believe Max Duggan can be a good quarterback, but they have that safety blanket there, the safety net with Chandler Morris at quarterback as well. But the bottom line is the defense has to get better. That was the problem last year. That's why Gary Patterson got fired. And it's crazy because Gary Patterson's a defensive guy, you know, and it just, that's where things fell apart. Didn't work out for him last year. Really the past couple years, it hasn't worked out for him. So what do they do this year? Well, they transition to a new coach, bringing Sonny Dykes as the head coach. Sonny Dykes hires Joe Gillespie as his defensive coordinator, and he's going to transition them away from Gary Patterson's famed 4-2-5 defense to what has become the far more in vogue 3-3-5 defense that Iowa State popularized back when Matt Campbell arrived in Ames, and it's kind of taken over the, the Big 12, and it's spread all throughout the country. Most teams have this in their system to some degree. They might call it something different. They have a variation of it. Arkansas with Barry Odom, they largely run this 3-3-5 scheme. It's become very popular. And actually, I'm a big fan of this defense as well. I love how it's built and the versatility that it has built into it. But they do lose some really good pass rushers to transfer. That hurts. But with this scheme, running the 3-3-5, losing those pass rushers is kind of mitigated by the scheme. And honestly, that's one of the reasons some of these pass rushers left. Because the 3-3-5 isn't really designed for edge rushers to go out there and put up massive numbers. There's really only one down lineman who rushes the passer on the defensive line in this 3-3-5 scheme. They bring guys from different levels, different angles. They find different ways to create pressure on the quarterback. They just do it a different way. And I do think Joe Gillespie will get this thing turned around. I just don't know how soon it will be because there's the transition. Anytime you bring in a new coach, especially when you're making a scheme change, you might not have all the players, the personnel to fit that scheme. There's going to be some bumps in the road. There's going to be a transition. And look, this TCU defense, like I will readily admit to you guys, it's definitely a concern for me when I'm projecting what TCU is going to be this year. Because let's run through some of these numbers. I told you guys they were bad last year. Let me tell you exactly how bad they were. I'm not going to try to hide this from you. I want you to have all the information to work off of when you're deciding whether or not you want to lay some money down on some of these wagers. But TCU last year was 118th nationally in scoring defense. I mean, they gave up 34 points a game, guys. 34 points a game. They were 126th nationally in defensive efficiency. They were 109th nationally in S&P plus defense. Any way you slice it, they were not just bad, they were horrifically bad last year. I do think a new voice with Joe Gillespie coming in in a new scheme will will serve them well. I think they just needed something new, something different, a new voice, a new set of eyes, because I think they quit on Patterson last year. I, I, I hate to say that, but I watched a fair amount of TCU last year, and my eyes saw a defense, really a team that kind of quit on Patterson late in the year. And Sonny Dykes comes in, speaking of new voices, not only Joe Gillespie, but Sonny Dykes as the head coach just brings a different vibe to the program. He approaches it differently. He's more of a player's coach than Patterson was, And I do believe offensively with his air raid system, I think he's going to unleash 
some of that offensive, that returning offensive talent, because there's a lot of it. There's a lot of returning offensive talent, and I think he's going to find a way to unleash that in a way that has maybe never really been unleashed to this point, even though they were really good on offense last year. I think they're going to be better this year. But a big part of my calculus when saying I really like TCU over six and a half wins is just the Big 12 itself. It's a strange year in the Big 12. There's no obvious front runner this year. There's no dominant force. We know forever it was Oklahoma. And what, what did they win? Six straight Big 12 titles, something crazy like that. But Oklahoma is not necessarily going to be the same version of Oklahoma. There's been a complete culture shift under Brent Venables this year. It's a transition year, just like TCU is undergoing. Now, of course, there's more talent at Oklahoma on that roster than there is at TCU. But without Lincoln Riley, with this team now going to be leaning more, you would think at least, more on their defense than what they do in their offense under Lincoln Riley. I don't know exactly what to expect from Oklahoma. I still expect them to be good because there's a lot of good players on that team. But are they the dominant force, the hands-down favorite coming into the, the 2022 season? I don't think that's necessarily the case. And then you look at Texas, who a lot of people are high on coming into this year because obviously they have been recruiting well and they have a lot of talent on that team, led by Quinn Ewers coming in from Ohio State, coming back home to Texas. But Texas was 5-7 and seven last year, guys. They do have a lot of pieces. You've got B. John Robinson. you got Worthy at receiver. You've got Quinn Ewers at quarterback. you got a lot of pieces, a lot of sexy pieces out there, man. But there's no guarantee. They turned over about a third of their roster. Sarkeesian's never proven to be an elite head coach. He hasn't. And, and he's been in some pretty good places. Not like he's been in some also rants. The best year this guy's ever had was 2014 at USC when he went 9-4. and four. And you go back to his Washington days. Now, I know they weren't in great shape when he took over back in 2009, but 5 and 7, 7 and 6, 7 and 6, 7 and 6, 8 and 4. And then he parlays the 8 and 4 year into the USC job. Now he went back some years, obviously, worked on the Pete Carroll staff. So there was a connection there at USC that helped him get that job. Then went 9 and 4 in 2014 at USC. And then 3 and 2 before he was let go. Obviously, he had some issues there in 2015. And then he goes to NFL with the Falcons comes to Alabama, and has done some outstanding things as an offensive coordinator. I think that's not up for debate. I mean, he's a fantastic offensive mind, but there's far more to being the CEO and being the head coach and being the leader of that organization, which is what a college football program is. It's an organization. Let's make no mistake about it. And he's never really had an overwhelming amount of success. So, I mean, yeah, five and seven, seven and six, seven and six, seven and six, eight and four, nine and four, five and seven last year at Texas. I'm not saying the guy can't do it. I'm just saying... He hasn't done it. There's a difference there. And so I I think Texas could be really good this year. There's certainly a possibility. I'm not going to sit here and say there's no chance Texas wins the Big 12. Of course they can. They're probably the most talented team in the entire conference. But that doesn't mean that they're going to win. It doesn't mean they're a dominant force coming into the season. Then Iowa State was hyped up as a top 10 team coming into last year. They were poised to have the best season in the history of their program. That was the expectation on the fan base and a lot of people in the national media. And even I thought they would be really good last year. They had some some talent in spots that they never really had before. But even though they built to last year, they couldn't even get it done with all those guys. And those guys are gone. Brees Hall is gone. Brock Purdy is gone. Charlie Kohler is gone. Xavier Hutchinson returns, and he's a really good receiver. But a lot of the pieces of what made them a top 10 team coming in last year, those guys are gone. That's not a dominant force. They can still be okay, but they're not going to be dominant. Baylor's still there. And Baylor's the one to watch here. I, I think they should probably be the favorite coming into this year. We'll talk more about that as the summer wears on. But even Baylor's like they're going to be good, but they're losing some key pieces on offense, losing their top two running backs, uh, almost their entire secondary. They made a change at quarterback. Obviously, they feel really good about Blake Shapin because they told 
Gary Bohannon, hey, go look elsewhere. And I'll give Dave Rand a credit. That was a great move. It was a very like generous move, not carrying that quarterback competition into the fall because that's what a lot of coaches do. Like they don't name a starter in the spring because they want both guys to be on the roster come the fall in case somebody gets hurt. You want to have two good options. But he didn't go that route. He, he told Bohannon, he's like, hey, man, like, look, you're not going to be the starter. So he gave an opportunity to go out and transfer somewhere else. Bohannon goes to USF, and he was the guy last year. But, I mean, Baylor's going to be good. I, I watched Baylor play a lot last year because they were, you know, the top team in the Big 12 for most of the year. And when Blake Shapin came in, honestly, when Bohannon went out, I was like, oh, man, I'm, that might be it for Baylor because their offense was built so much on the ground game. And... Blake Shapin is not the same dual threat type guy that Gary Bohannon was, but Blake Shapin played really well when he was given an opportunity to, and I thought he was a better quarterback. I thought he was a more polished passer. I thought he was more poised back there. I thought he just opened up the offense a little bit more, and I think, obviously, their coaching staff thought the same thing. Clearly, they did, because he's going to be the starter coming into the season. They've already named him as that guy, but they're still losing a lot of pieces, and my question with Baylor is this. Like, yes, you have some guys coming back, but you're losing a guy like Jalen Petrie off your defense. I mean, those, those are big-time players for you. As, as a program, is Baylor, are they at the point where they are a reload team and not a rebuild team? I don't know if they're there yet. So I do think Baylor's still going to be good because I have a lot of faith in Dave Aranda, but are they a, a, a dominant favorite coming into this season? I don't think that they are. In Oklahoma State, we talked about them earlier. They're losing a ton of pieces that made them really what they were last year. That defense, I'm not going to say they're not going to be good because I, I do think Derek Mason's a good coordinator, but you're losing your defense coordinator, losing a ton of pieces off that defense, which is what drove you to success last year. You lose Jalen Warren. You have Spencer Sanders coming back, but you're going to put a lot more on Spencer Sanders, and he's been nothing but, honestly, average his entire career. So they're probably going to be good, but are they going to be dominant? No, I, I don't expect that from Oklahoma State. So I just think the, the Big 12 in general is lacking that dominant force, at least on paper, coming into this season. And if you look at TCU's schedule, they open at Colorado. Yeah, that's a road game. It's a tricky spot. But Colorado, as, as I said earlier, I think very well could be one of the worst teams in all of Power 5 football. So I got TCU winning that game. Tarleton, we're not even going to talk about that game. They're going to win that game. At SMU could be tricky. That's a rivalry game. It's an underrated rivalry. Those two teams do not like each other. SMU came into Fort Worth and actually beat TCU last year, 42-34. But there's a transition, as we mentioned. Sonny Dykes is an interesting game. Sonny Dykes was at SMU, goes really not that far down the road to TCU in Fort Worth. And now he's coming back to SMU week three. I actually, I guess it's week four. So they get a bye week before SMU, which that certainly does help. And I think TCU's got a better team. I think that they're going to win that football game. So that's 3-0 right there. And then you look at their Big 12 schedule. This is the year where they only have four road games in Big 12 because they play nine conference games, right? So every other year you have five road games in conference play. Last year, they had five road games. This year, they have five home games. So their road games are at Kansas, at West Virginia, at Texas, at Baylor. At Texas, at Baylor will be difficult games. They'll probably lose both those games, although I think they could you know, step up and maybe win one of those. But likely, for being honest, probably lose both of those games. At Kansas, I think Kansas will be a little better this year in year two under Lance Leipold. But no, I, I, TCU should win that football game. If they lose that football game, we have no chance to cash this bet. But right now, I've got Kansas. I got TCU beating Kansas on the road at West Virginia. I'm very inter interested to see what West Virginia is going to be like this year. They haven't really broken through under Neil Brown. You bring in JT Daniels as a transfer from Georgia, 
and that's certainly an upgrade over Jared Deggie, what they had in the past couple years. But what does he have to work with around in there? I just don't know if the talent is there. They've actually, at West Virginia, been largely led by their defense, which is not what Neil Brown's really known for. But that's a game that TCU 100% could win. That's a classic toss-up game. At West Virginia, maybe you give the Mountaineers the edge there, but I think that's a toss-up game. And then at home, they get Oklahoma. That probably a loss. Oklahoma State, I think, is a very, very winnable game for them this year. Kansas State, who a lot of people are high on in the preseason, I think that's a game that TCU certainly could win. Texas Tech, they're also transitioning to a new coach at home. I think TCU can win that game. Iowa State, with all the losses from last year's team, I do not expect Iowa State to be a, a contender for the Big 12 title. I'm not saying they're going to go back to being like a 3-9 and nine type team like Iowa State has been like traditionally, 3-9, 4-8, but it's probably more a 6-6, six and 7-5 six, team. I guess they were 7-5 last year, but I think they're going to kind of revert back to the mean a little bit this year. So let's say that they lose to Oklahoma, they lose at Texas, they lose at Baylor. Let's say they lose those three games. I think those are three teams that most prognosticators would have as the top three teams in the Big 12 coming into the season. So let's just say those are all three losses. But I think they've got Colorado week one. I think they're going to beat Tarleton. I think they're going to beat SMU. That's three right there. I think they beat Kansas. That gets you to four. And then the rest of them are toss-up games. So I think Oklahoma State at home is a toss-up game. Kansas State's a toss-up game. At West Virginia's a toss-up game. Texas Tech's a toss-up game. I probably lean towards TCU, but heck, let's call it a toss-up game. Iowa State's a toss-up game. So I got them at four wins. I got them at three losses. And then you've got five toss-up, five swing games, whatever you want to call them. They get four of those five swing games at home. I think TCU goes three and two at least in those swing games. In fact, I think there's a really good shot they go four and one. I've got them projected right now in the preseason at eight and four. They've got too much returning talent, too much firepower on offense to not be better than they were last year. I think one of the reasons that they ended up bottoming out last year being five and seven was things just spiraled. Things got toxic in that locker room with Gary Patterson. Uh, His voice was just kind of stale. And I'm not saying anything negative about Gary Patterson. Great coach from all accounts, great guy. But sometimes you just need a change. You need a new voice. The players weren't buying in. And I I think they just quit. I don't think that's going to happen this year. I think Sonny Dykes coming in kind of rejuvenates those guys, rejuvenates the program. And I think there's enough talent on hand in a conference that lacks a dominant team. Again, at least in the preseason, we'll see what happens once we actually get out there on the field to play. But lacks dominant team, in my opinion, in the preseason. I think this TCU team can get back to 8-4 and four range this season. So boom, there it is. There are your first five 2022 college football win total best bets. I'll have the back half of this list for you guys later on this week. So make sure to check back then. I hope you guys enjoyed this show and I hope that you got to see a little bit of what I was talking about at the outset of the show. This podcast is not going to be for the faint of heart. This is not for the casual fan. This is for you guys. The hardcore, diehard, live and breathe it college football fans who I think for far too long have just been largely ignored by the mainstream college football media. I am not the mainstream college football media. I am far from that. I'm a I'm a nobody. This is a grassroots podcast. But one thing I can promise you guys is that we're going to take care of the hardcore fans here, the diehard fans. That's what this show is about. That's who this show is designed for. What you heard today on this podcast is the type of in-depth coverage of college football that you can expect the rest of the summer, all season long, and hopefully on well into the future. You won't always agree with me, 
Heck, in fact, you probably don't agree with a lot of the picks I gave you today, but that's okay. That's what makes college football a beautiful thing. But whether you agree with me or not, I hope you can see, I'm gonna do my research. I'm gonna bring you guys the goods. I'm gonna bring the heat each and every time I turn on this mic because this is what I love. I love college sports. I know you guys too, and I hope that you will continue to tune in. And again, if you enjoyed what you heard today, please, please follow me on Twitter. It's at NoGradPod on Twitter. Like, retweet, comment. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you guys think about the show, where I went wrong, what I got right. I love to hear your thoughts on that. You can also follow us on Instagram. That's Never Graduate Podcast on Instagram. You can even email us at NeverGraduatePodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can send any questions, any ideas for the show. We'll throw some ideas out there that we're going to get your input on here shortly. And uh, that's the place you can also contact us. And again, if you're really feeling generous, if you really enjoyed what you heard today, I would greatly appreciate it if you would consider giving the show a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it will allow you to give a five-star rating and review. I would sincerely appreciate that because, again, I don't have a big media company behind me here. We have a distribution partner that's given me the opportunity to make this show happen, but it's only going to work with your support and things like ratings and reviews, following us on social media, interacting with us on social media. Those are things that help a show, a brand new podcast like this grow. So again, if you have it in your heart, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really, really, really had a great time talking some national college football here today. And I will be back later on this week with part two of this list. So thank you very much for listening and checking out the podcast. I'll see you guys next time.